At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We all have questions, and we're all looking for the answers. But sometimes, navigating the answers to cultural issues through the lens of the gospel can be challenging. Join us for our Asking for a Friend series, where each week we'll answer tough questions and provide you with gospel-centered answers that you can share with a friend. Have you guys ever heard of the phrase, he's got skeletons in his closet, by a show of hands? He's got skeletons in his closet. It's almost like alluding to a double life. It's like keeping a secret or an embarrassing fact about themselves. And so they'll often hide a secret underneath a facade like they're just faking it. But you know behind they're actually hiding something dark. And so we're going to play a little bit of a, uh, a game today, a lot of change today. I am going to say the name of a person, and you are going to shout out the name of that double life. Okay? <laughs> oh, no. Um, so I'm going to shout out the name of, you know, a, a movie or a TV character, and you're going to shout out the name of that person. And the slide will come up after and see if you guys got it right. Are you ready? Awesome. The first person, Bruce Wayne. Who's this? You guys are awesome. Let's see it. There he is. Christian Bale. Uh, Peter Parker. There you go. Yes. Let's see it. Tobey Maguire, the goat. Can I, like, yeah? Yeah? Good. I'm glad you guys are on, on, on it. Good. Uh, Bob Parr. This is crickets. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Incredible. I can't believe somebody got that. Bob Parr is Mr. Incredible. Um, here's another one. Scott Calvin. Santa Claus. Yeah, let's see it. There he is. Tim Allen himself. Uh, here's a great one. Uh, Miley Stewart. No, maybe. Hey, teenage girls. Yes. Hannah Montana. You get the best of both worlds, right? And then, uh, this last one, hiding a dark past, like really skeletons in his closet. I'm going to say the name Walter White. Heisenberg, let's see it, Heisenberg, a science teacher turned uh, meth dealer. So it's from Breaking Bad. So the, the question is, does God have skeletons in his closet? Does God have skeletons in his closet? Is there something underneath that he is hiding that we don't know about? This morning, we're starting our sermon series, Asking for a Friend. So we just concluded a series on Revelation, and now we're moving into Asking for a Friend. And throughout the last probably couple months, through our social media pages, we've fielded questions from all sorts of people across our campuses. People shared questions about how they struggled through their faith related to their faith in Jesus. And so we condensed all these questions down to a short list, figuring out the most related and most common questions, and today we're working our way through the question of why does the God of the New Testament seem so different from the God of the Old Testament? This is a question that we need to consider. Culture is asking it. People around us are asking it. Maybe we are asking it. Uh, anybody know who Richard Dawkins is? Richard Dawkins, very famous anti-theist, uh, states this. 
that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, capriciously malevolent bully. Like that, those are harsh words. Another uh, very famous comedian jokes about how God doesn't hate anyone, that is not anymore, like you should see him in the Old Testament, was, is what they say. So the question is, are, are either of these statements true? You know, our, our hearts may be saying no, but maybe we should really delve deep into really figure out how to answer, well, how do you put two and two together? How do you, how do you reconcile New Testament and Old Testament God? Personally, I've encountered parts of the Old, Testaments that, the Old Testament that make me cringe. Yes, even a pastor that's up on stage preaching can have doubts in their faith. And I've wrestled through them and, and studied and asked God. And so it's, you ever feel like it's easier to talk about Jesus than of the God of the Old Testament? So, you know, I've, I've heard people who are wrestling within questions and myself as well, like questions like these. is why does he seem so different in the New Testament? Why does God seem so angry in the Old Testament? You see stories of killings, conquering cities, and obliterating Canaanites. How can God's people celebrate this? God saving Noah from the flood. Like, maybe you've painted a, a rainbow in God's, uh, the, the Noah's ark with the animals right above your infant. But then you ask the question, wait, what, what happened to the rest of humanity? Like, God did that? And so... As, as you go through Genesis, then read harsh instructions in Deuteronomy, then read conquests in Joshua, you wonder if this is the same story that tells of the love of Jesus. So to, to illustrate this, I've got a, a drum over here. This will illustrate the Old Testament over here. It's one of my wife's drums because she's a music therapist. And so the, it looks like an O, so there you go. It's the Old Testament. This will illustrate the Old Testament over here. And our tendency is to quickly shut the Old and open the New Testament. Because the New Testament God seems more compelling than the Old Testament God. Jesus' words say, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me can be saved. That can feel better than some of the scenes we read in the first two-thirds of the Bible. Compare those stories to Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. Uh, treating the women with, with five husbands with kindness and respect, forgiving the woman caught in adultery. They, they almost sound a little bit better. And so to illustrate the New Testament, as I go through the guitars, um, is the, the crown of thorns to illustrate the New Testament and Jesus. So we've got these. So before we get into the Bible... Those who have, maybe this is a preamble to those who have asked these questions. Let God speak to you today through his word and to answer any doubts that you may have. Some Christians have been rattled in their faith because of these questions. Involve him in the process rather than doing it in isolation. And there's so much of this topic, you know, libraries have been written on this topic and I won't pretend to answer every single question, I can't in uh, four hours of time, which is what I'm going to do today. 30 minutes, that's my goal. But it's to give you a solid foundation of understanding so that you can look through this lens that I'm going to give you 
as you read the scope of Scripture. Sound good? The questions that I want you to answer, that we are going to answer, is what is God's character like? And can we trust in him and in his word? So let's start at the beginning of Genesis. If you've got a Bible with you, open it up to the very beginning of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. This book reveals the character of God and it can be seen throughout the entire Old Testament. There are three attributes that reveal his character that help us understand that. And the big idea that we're going to focus on today is that the God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament. The two gods are not two gods, in fact. They are the same God. So the first point is God's blessings reveal his love. God's blessings reveal his love. And this points to the Old Testament God. We're going to stick a lot to, we're going to stay in the Old Testament for a little while. Uh, look at Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 22. And if you don't have a Bible, I've got it right up here on the screen. And God blessed them, saying to Adam and Eve, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And then follow into verse 28. Skip down to verse 28 in chapter 1. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. This is great news. This is, this is good news of this section that I just read. God reveals himself as the creator who desires to bless his people. That's the core of God. He created us. He desires to bless us. You have phrases like he blessed them. God gave them. These phrases describe how he created a habitation for humanity that is overflowing and is beautiful. It's overflowing in its provision, and it's beautiful in its presentation. Look at, look at the image that I have right here. This is the earth. This is Warren, guys. This is Warren, Michigan. <laughs> I wish. The earth is beautiful, right? The earth that he has given us is gorgeous. He desires to bless us because he loves us. And he wanted them... That, you know, that, that life, he wanted them to have this. He wanted to bless them and not turn towards a life of destruction and death. That's the core of who God is. Have you ever received a gift and only seen it as a temptation? Anybody by a show of hands? So like, I have a, I have a lighter right here. So imagine your, your parents, one Christmas, love you so much. They wrapped up the lighter, they saved up the entire year, and you open it up and it's a lighter. You know, happy, you know, Merry Christmas, guys. So, obviously. I'm not going to set the place on fire, okay? I, I see the fear in your eyes. So they love you. They, they, this, is, um, this is probably one of the greatest temptations as a child. Um, and so they did this to show you love. You know, they poured all their time and energy. You guys don't seem like you're on board. This is a great Christmas present. <laughs> 
It's a lighter, guys. It provides heat. It provides uh, warmth. It provides life. But what can it also do? It's set things on fire. It can really destroy everything. And as a child, you might be tempted to set everything in your house on fire. But this is, this is one of the temptations of the blessings. Just as Adam and Eve, they received this blessing, they still had this temptation to turn towards destruction. And so uh, while our creator, God, didn't force them into that, he gave them a choice. And so despite the love of their creator, humans rebelled. That's the story that we get. They rebelled. They rebelled against this God of blessing and of generosity. And just like God had warned them, what happened? Death and destruction followed. These things quickly became terrible. Murder and vengeful violence filled the earth. And in the record of the fifth chapter of Genesis, if you, you know, skip forward four chapters, in the fifth chapter of Genesis, over, uh, some people think around 1,500 years had passed. So over 1,000 years had passed, with some being faithful to the Creator, while most grew terribly destructive. Listen how the times were described. Skip forward one more chapter in Genesis 6-5. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, the, and this is skipping forward even more in Genesis 6, 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Sound familiar? In stark contrast to the description of humans stands God the creator. Right? God cannot be in the presence of this violence, of this destruction. He is a pure and holy creator. And through, you know, though the rebellion deserved judgment, God was long in patience and continued to allow humans to experience the splendor. Remember the image that I showed? The splendor at the habitation he created for them. The, the, the writer of Psalm 145, while for reflecting on how God has acted towards humans who rebelled against him, described God in this way. This is who God is. In Psalm 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. At the start of this controversial question, what kind of God is God? That. God is a merciful God. He is a gracious God who wants the best for you. He deeply, deeply loves you. If we allow ourselves to get fully honest, we see this expression of God in our own lives. We're stubborn. I'm stubborn. We have stubbornly rebelled against God, whether you accept it or not. Imagine the people that you've been stubborn and rebelled against just people on this earth. Maybe your spouse, your friends, your coworkers, anybody around you. To God, it's even more. His abounding love and patience, even though he knows every thought and action that you do, he is abounding in his patience and his love. You could say that his grace period is phenomenal, right? Like with, with Noah in this, in this period, his grace period lasted over 1,500 years in Noah's time. That's a long time. Can you imagine giving like your spouse a grace period of 1,500 years? 
That's a long, long time. He was faithful even when we weren't. Are you experiencing his grace period this morning? I pray that you are. Not only that, but he is willing to bless his people beyond measure. Are you amazed at how God's blessings are revealing his love for you? Are you able to identify the blessings that God has given you? And maybe life is terrible right now for you. But look, you have breath in your lungs. We're sitting in an air-conditioned church. You have a seat to sit on. You have people around you that love you. And we often miscount all of these blessings, and we don't identify them as blessings. Know that God loves you, and he has blessed each and every single one of us. So God's blessings reveal his love. That's the first point. And of these blessings also happens to be the warning that he gives. God's warnings reveal his mercy. Let's skip forward into Genesis 6, 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. There was one exception to the description of the earth, the entire earth that had, been, that had become corrupt. It was Noah. Noah was the one exception. God informed Noah that his patience had run out. 1,500 years, his patience had run out, and he was going to start over. But to provide for the remnant of people faithful to him, God gave him instructions to build a, what? An ark. This is God's mercy in action. Humanity would have the opportunity to survive because God's mercy and here's a New Testament reference that hints at God's extraordinary mercy in 2 Peter 2.5. And if you want to write down the entire section on 2 Peter 2.4-10 through 10 is beautiful. 2 Peter 2.4-10. But here's the one verse. It said, He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. What was Noah doing these decades while he was building the ark? You know, he was building the ark, right? But he was heralding righteousness. He was pleading with people, get on my ark. <laughs> like the world is going to end, please join me. And local headlines probably said something uh, like, local idiot builds ark out of fear of impending doom. Because the world had become so perverse, of course they didn't believe him. Yet God was willing to provide this mercy and survival. And what do, you, what do you think God was thinking as all of this was taking place? Was Richard Dawkins right in thinking he was a vengeful God? Anxiously anticipating the moment when he would flood the earth? Like, I can't wait to flood the earth. Absolutely not. I'm going to read this next verse. This, this next verse. It's cream of the crop. It's really, really good. It reveals a truth that God declared through the prophet Ezekiel. It was spoken before judgment came down on the Jewish people throughout the, uh, through the Babylonian Empire. So God would use the Babylonian Empire to enact justice on the Jewish people. This is what Ezekiel says in 33.11. 
As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Does that sound like a warning to you? Absolutely. God is merciful. He is pleading you, please turn back from your evil ways. I want to bless you, but you just need to turn back. There can be no stronger of a statement in Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, God longs for the rebellious to turn back to him. Sodom and Gomorrah. Anybody recognize those two cities? Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. This is seen in how he mercifully sent the angel to warn these two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah of coming judgment. The the twin cities had developed a sexually perverse culture filled with pride, violence, hatred, and abuse of the poor. All of things that we would say, absolutely, that that needs justice. God would have wiped them out immediately, but he didn't. Despite the presence of Abraham's extended family, they continued to grow deeper in their destructive ways. He gave them time to turn from their wicked ways. And one of my favorite uh, descriptions in Scripture is the conversation between Abraham and God. You guys remember this conversation? Where he says, Abraham asked God, would you just withhold this judgment from these two cities if you found 50 people that turn over to you? If you find 50 people out of these two giant cities, please withhold your judgment. It didn't happen. Then he pleads with God. He negotiates. He says, how about 40? Didn't happen. 30? Again, not. 20? 10 people. If you find 10 people, would you withhold your judgment? Did they find 10 people? No. The Lord says, for the sake of the 10, I won't destroy the city. He agrees to Abraham's terms. But Abraham can't find 10 who would turn to God. This is not a vengeful God who delights in destroying those who don't agree with him. He longs for their repentance. He has patiently waited hundreds of years for humans to turn to him and find life. He sends messengers. He sends kindness and warnings. Romans 2.4 says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The purpose of his kindness is to lead you towards repentance, for you to turn away from your wicked ways and towards God. This is the Bible in one sentence. is God's redemptive plan to turn enemies into children. Enemies into children. He desires for you to come to him as a child. You are, with the New Testament talks about how you become a child of God. You are in God's family. You are now sons and daughters of the King Most High. He desires you. He wants you. Know that there is reconciliation, that it is possible in Jesus. So he desperately wants you to return to him. He loves you. And maybe that's the story that you're living right now. Are you spending your time and money on a road leading away from God? Are you going your own way? Maybe you're going in two places, one of two places. 
Maybe you've placed God off in the corner. You're rolling on with life. Things are going pretty well. I pray that this word today would be a message to you of God's love and grace calling you back to himself. See this as a warning that his mercy does not always last. He is patient. So lean into that patience. Or the second route, maybe you have truly hit the wall. You're at rock bottom. And you're wondering if God even wants you back. I hope you can see that God longs for your return. He wants you. He desperately wants you back. So if God's blessings reveal his love, his warnings reveal his mercy, then his judgments reveal his justice. God's judgments reveal his justice. And this is where the Old Testament and the New Testament all come together. I'm going to move them closer and closer. So as we talked about the Old Testament, New Testament, crown of thorns, and the drum. Almost seem like they're two different gods. Before we get into this text, put yourself in God's shoes when you're thinking about God's judgment. If you were God, which you're not, but if you were, how would you do it? How would you enact justice in this culture? Think about any atrocity in the history of mankind. How would you do it? We, we might think that our reforms could be better. I think I could do a little bit better. We may play the game of what if, but at the end of the day, compare your way to his. Psalm 18.30 says his way is perfect. He is a God that is altogether patient and just at the exact same time. He knows when his patience no longer is working. He knows when it is time for his justice to come in. In Genesis 7.11, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Despite God's lengthy patience and grace, and his merciful warnings, the earth and all it contained continued to progress in their corruption. He warned them, please turn away. They didn't do it. And so the corruption was a distortion of the purpose for creation. He wanted them back. Yet did they? No. It didn't reflect his attributes. It, you know, this, this world was destroying itself. God demonstrated justice by opening the floodgates to cleanse the earth. One of my favorite books that talks about this topic says this quote right here. On closer inspection, God's anger doesn't reflect a self-centeredness. You know, some people think that God is just self-centered. He just wants all the praise for himself. It says God's jealousy and anger spring from love and concern. Not from hurt, pride, or immaturity. His jealousy isn't capricious or petty. God is jealous for our best interests. His commands are given for your good. In fact, if we harm ourselves, we only harm ourselves when we live for ourselves and create our own idolatrous God substitutes. 
our own God substitutes. Think of any side effect for any sin that you're struggling with right now. Or any, for that matter. This sin causes this. Drunkenness causes blank. Your temptation causes blank. Everything that we are struggling with causes death and destruction. We only destroy ourselves. So God wants you back from that. Truly, God, he hates all sin. And that's what we would expect from the one described as God is love that talks about in the Old Testament, that God is love because sin destroys all that is good. What would God be like if he actually didn't hate sin? Would he be a just God? Absolutely not. A just and good God must provide judgment of sin. And through the judgment of the flood, God preserved humanity before it destroyed itself completely and started a new world. And listen to the eerily similar description of Genesis 9-1. You know, Noah's family had survived, and right after the floods had receded, God says this, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same thing as the beginning of the Bible. Further, God's justice is seen in providing a mandate to correct the violence toward other human beings. He says in Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of a human... By a human shall this blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God's justice is seen in his judgment. His love and value of humanity is seen in protecting his people. In this new post-flood world, what does God do? The rest of the Old Testament continues to show how we ultimately cannot live righteous lives. I could stand up here for five hours talking about how humans tried and tried again, and they failed and failed again. God's plan of redemption would require more than a second chance and an additional law. It would require a new heart. It would require a new heart. And that's where the crown of thorns comes into play. At just the right time, God came to the world in the person of God the Son, who is Jesus. Always just assume the answer is Jesus. God's Son is Jesus. And the wrath and judgment of God towards our sin was poured out on his own Son. He became sin for us. The one who knew no sin in order that we could be saved. And this is where they both come together. This is actually a crown of thorns. I'm like, I've bled because of this thing. So as if, I I love puzzles, right? As if two pieces come together, it all makes sense now. Is it going to stay though? Yes. Great. (laughs) The salvation story with Jesus brings them together to illustrate God's salvation that he provides for us, that we might be saved. They are the same God. At what length was God willing to show that he loves you? Is he the vengeful God of the Old Testament? Well, look to the person of Jesus. Does this look vengeful to you? 
He was willing to die for you and for me. It's, it's not following a list of rules. It's placing our faith in the person who is perfect already, the unblemished lamb, to die on our behalf. This shows the lengths in which God was willing to go to save you and me. He is patient. He is merciful, warning about the rebellion over and over and desiring, not desiring our destruction, but their repentance. And that's what it requires, is for us to turn to God saying, I am a sinner in need of you. I repent. I turn over to you. Please give me life. And God's judgment is also the description of Jesus in the New Testament. If you think that God is all judgment in the Old Testament, think again, because in the New Testament, I'm going to say some of these bullet points right here, is that Jesus actually explained God's judgment in the New Testament. He came to the world speaking grace and truth. Grace and what? Truth. He was polarizing in his day. He went everywhere preaching repentance, warning of final judgment, and inviting into his kingdom. We always say John 3.16, but in John 3.36, he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God rests upon him. Again, it's self-inflicted. In fact, Jesus talked often of coming judgment, speaking more about hell than about heaven. The same Jesus who ate with sinners and reached to the marginalized to show them love, this Jesus will one day return to fulfill God's promise of judgment on all of the evil that has plagued this creation. We just finished this entire series on Revelation, so it's probably really fresh in your mind. I'm going to read Revelation 19.11. This whole section of the Apostle John describes him and his judgment at the end of all time in Revelation. This is Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Can I get an amen? Jesus is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the, of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the God of love. You could absolutely. That is the end of all time. Jesus will come to judge the earth. And this message gives confidence and hope to the people that John was writing to who were suffering under the unjust hand of the culture they were living in. So this gives them hope. Our hearts cry out for a God of justice, right? When the planes hit the Twin Towers on 9-11, what did we cry out for? Justice. 
when we see crimes occur in our world, there is a longing for the victim to be cared for and the perpetrator to be held accountable. And yet we also have a cry of mercy. God, have mercy on me. We always want judgment on others and mercy on ourselves, especially when we're the ones who have committed the offense. Ask God for forgiveness. Thank him for his mercy. Thank him for his justice. It is the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament that express these qualities. His heart. Here's the thing. God is grieved by injustice. He he mourns after this injustice. And he promises to end the violence against his chosen creation. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus, he desires to see the best for them. And so he also makes redemption available for the guilty even. Those who have turned away. He provides salvation not only for those that, he, uh, that may seem like they're God's people, but everyone. He provides salvation to everyone. It's in the death and resurrection of Jesus that he calls people to himself to be saved. And you have that opportunity that if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, and I know we say it every Sunday morning, but in this moment, know that this God that spans over all of mankind that we read about in the entirety of Scripture, he loves you and he wants you to turn to him. Turn to his love, to his mercy, to his justice. Accept his invitation and his warning, especially knowing that full well you will not always have the time to turn to him. You are given this moment, so turn to him in love because he is very patient in this moment and he will not always be. So the big question is, so does God have skeletons in his closet? Absolutely not. He doesn't. He's trying to help you and me get rid of ours. All throughout the scriptures, he reveals himself as a God whose blessings reflect his love, whose warnings reveal his mercy, and whose judgment reveals justice. God is no different in the Old Testament than he is in the New. God, by his very nature, is unchanging. While we might see one aspect of his nature revealed in certain passages of Scripture more than other aspects, God himself does not change. So the questions that I presented to you at the beginning is what is God's character like? He's a God who desires you. He loves you. He provides mercy and he provides justice. And can we trust in him and in his word? You answer that in your own heart. I believe absolutely we can trust in the God of the universe who has time and time again been faithful to his people. Malachi 3.6, Hebrews 13.8 both say the same thing, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is, he is unchanging. So absolutely turn to him this morning and know that he is faithful even when we are not. I've got uh, two books that I would highly recommend. I've only had, what, 30 minutes to present to you this entire topic. Uh, the first one being, Is God a Moral Monster? by Paul Copen. 
highly recommend this book. It's the, the subtitle is Making Sense of the Old Testament God. If you want to read further, this is a great book that touches on this subject. And then just in general, for a lot of hard, difficult questions, is the big book of Bible difficulties right here. It's a big book. That's why it's called a big book. The big book of Bible difficulties. It goes through all of Scripture and presents possible, uh, maybe just contradictions, hard questions. This is a great book to go through as well. So know that if you want to further study further, those are awesome, awesome texts that you can read, for, uh, read in more. Know that God will never fail you. He is unchanging and he absolutely loves you. And if you turn to him, you will see that he is truly a faithful God to be praised. Let's pray, church. Father, we love you. Seeing you uh, all through the history of mankind, we know that you're, you're the same God who never fails. And so we praise you for that. I thank you for the kind of God that we serve. Let us turn to you and see the kind of character that you have. Knowing that you're a, a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God, but also a, a God that is just. So help us to see as we're reading the scope of Scripture that you truly are the same God in the Old Testament and New Testament. Help us to cling to Jesus we praise you for the offering of salvation in his name and for even sending him to demonstrate at what lengths that you would go to save your people. Jesus, we, we praise you for your sacrifice. We praise you for the perfect life that you lived. And we praise you for your holy nature. Father, we're not good enough. We, we desperately need you because we can't do this life on our own. And so if there's anybody in this room, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them in this moment and let them know that salvation is possible right in this moment. Father, I pray that people would turn to you. As in my own life, Lord, I've seen the evidence of your blessings and your love in my life. And at the core of it, Lord, we identify that and we praise you for that. Father, let us cling to your faithfulness because we will fail time and time again. Lord, we see that you are truly faithful in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.